Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Asia chapter of the Asian American Journalists Association. I'm Bill Porman. And I'm Rebecca Iswara. This is the latest in our series of podcasts leading up to our 10th annual New Now Next Media Conference, or N3Con. The conference kicks off on the 27th of August. The theme this year is the new front lines, as journalists find themselves covering a variety of crises, from a global pandemic, to protests and riots, from worldwide economic disruption, to an accelerating conflict between China and the United States. In the midst of all this, journalists also have to contend with growing attacks on press freedoms. Our guest for this episode, P.N. Balji, spent a career navigating the tricky waters of journalistic freedom in Asia. Balji worked for more than 40 years at five different newspapers in the city-state of Singapore, three times as the top editor. A year ago, he also published a book, Reluctant Editor, about his experiences. To start off our conversation, we talked about the sorts of risks he took during his career. When I was uh, editing new paper, and when I was editing uh, today, uh, there were a number of risks that I took in the kind of stories that we published, you know. But uh, I began to realize later that uh, firstly, the government was not that interested in the new paper because it was a it was an afternoon newspaper. It was uh, better than the Sun of England of London, but still huge headlines and. Uh, so the government was really more interested in the Straits Times. So I felt that I had that window of opportunity. They were not paying attention to us. So I could push the limits bit by bit, which I did. And of course, when I went to launch today, it was a slightly different ball game. It was a more, um, for want of a better uh, phrase, it was a more serious paper. And uh, I also, at that time, our Prime Minister was Mr. Go Chok Tong, who took over from Lee Kuan Yew. And watching, Lee, uh, watching Go Chok Tong, having met him a few times, having listened to his speeches, having spoken to people who knew him, I felt that Go Chok Tong will not interfere with today. It was a gut feel, and I was proven right. And I was proven right. So uh, the journalist's gut feel, you know, can be uh, like a manner from heaven. You know? So that that was uh, that was the reason why I was not out there to uh, to go against the government. But I just felt that Singapore journalism can be done in a slightly different way, not to follow the Straits Times, the the Straits Times style, you know of presenting a story, writing a story. And I was proven right, yeah. Do you think you took any risks by writing the book, uh, by telling some of your stories behind some of these events over the course of your career? Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, there were risks. Uh, if you don't take risks, life is very unexciting. So you take risks, what I would call calculated risks, so when you want to cross the road, you're taking a risk. <laughs> yes. But you take a calculated risk, right? If you if you're so frightened, you will never cross the road. So I did take risks. And I think my entire career in journalism, and that's the only career I have known, 
it is uh, all uh, risk taking i've i've mentioned in the book when i started journalism in a newspaper called the new nation how we were facing stiff competition from a competitor and i was in the crime beat doing crime reporting and the competitor was paying sources to give them tip offs and they were not talking to us the sources so we had to pay and we paid which was mm. a risk yes and uh, <laughs> we were taken to court oh and uh, we we were fined but the 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 one that uh, makes me very unhappy about that incident is the people who gave us the tip offs were government servants and they were sacked mm so that that you know it still still sits on me it's the classic problem of protecting your sources yes well turning to today um what's your assessment of the the current state of press freedom of uh, journalistic freedom current in singapore state of press freedom mm-hmm. in singapore well uh, i uh, i would like to change the narrative from press freedom mm-hmm. to press responsibility hmm. because i feel press freedom uh, if taken to its uh, limits then i think it becomes irresponsible i'm not saying i'm against press freedom but if taken to its limits it can be irresponsible so i would say i would look at it from uh, uh media responsibility what is the responsibility of a media and if i want to put it in a very uh, simple way media's responsibility is to report fairly and accurately when when i mean fairly i mean to give as many sides of the story as possible you may not be able to give all sides of the story because uh for, because of deadline pressure because people don't want to talk to you your your skills how to uh, get information out of people and sources especially in singapore don't talk because of fear and more and uh, unfortunately i would say most of the information that comes out is from the government so if you read our papers then and now i would say 80 to 90% of the stories come from government this minister said that prime minister said this dpm said that quite boring stuff uh so once you have that situation and and that in a way makes it difficult to get a story that is has as full a picture as possible but we must try i still believe journalists must try and second thing is how do you say it in what language do you say it hmm. you can say it in very uh, sensational sensational kind of language or you can say it with a good use of language not saying it directly slightly indirectly but your readers will get a sense Hey, something is not right here. So that's what I meant by responsible media. Hmm. And well, responsible media doesn't mean just mouthing what the government says. 
you have to you have to report what the government says but you give the other point of view by trying to get academics maybe uh, opposition politicians you know uh, people who don't like the government possibly civil servants civil servants who have retired who may be able to give you a perspective which may add value to the story Yes, and those sound like classic journalistic virtues, right? Trying to report around a story. Uh, yes, but it's hardly, but it's hardly followed. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it's easier to just report the one particular side. It's easier also to report. She said this. He said that. They said that. You know. Ah, uh, yeah. It's much more difficult to analyze the, the story because you need a lot of knowledge. You know. Right. Right. and you also want to present something that is refreshing you know returning to your thought about press responsibility um i i'm certainly sympathetic toward that because uh, as a general idea freedom without responsibility uh doesn't add up if you just exercise freedom it can lead to a lot of irresponsibility uh so so i'm sympathetic to your to your viewpoint yeah it's like it's like our children right my grandchildren we can we control them 100% or should we control them to a certain extent but let them go give them their wings right mm-hmm. so they can slowly fly right you give them the wings but you also give them the roots to know that if you are in a, in trouble this is the place you come back to hmm. right so there's no kind of a i don't believe in total freedom because we have responsibilities as uh, grandparents parents citizens right of the country and we must we must have we must carry that responsibility with a with a lot of uh, kind of a burden just drilling a little bit into that responsibility idea within the singaporean context for those who aren't familiar with them can you talk about the ob markers oh of course as one of my favorite topics okay <laughs> oh yeah ob markers i'm not sure how many of your people your viewers will know what it is mm-hmm. it's it's out of bound markers which is a golf term which was introduced by the former foreign minister mr george o many years ago and he was the press he was also the uh, minister in charge of the press at one time so he introduced this basically saying that these are the ob markers the ob markers were never spelled out very clearly you know it was something that he said ob markers and then you know the media took it on to mean various things you know but there are certain things which are really out of bounds in singapore race language religion so these are the ob markers you know but the press because it has worked under a system with rules government rules they wanted to know what the ob markers are and the government was not prepared to tell them hmm. which which is from the government's point of view is a very smart move why should i tell you you cross the ob markers then i will tell you right <laughs> so 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 that this was maybe 20 30 years ago and but what has happened is that the ob markers have shifted as society changes ob markers must shift i still remember many years ago 
even mentioning the word gay, homosexuality, was a no-no in this government. You couldn't even mention it in our reports. Hmm. Today, hasn't Gobi, hasn't the Obi markers on on um, gayhood shifted? I think it has shifted, right? Yeah. Many years ago, yeah. Prime Minister Mr. Go Chok Tong gave an interview in the Time magazine where he said, we will allow gays, we will recruit gays in the civil service. Hmm. Can you believe that? That's a clear shift. So you Absolutely. have, as a journalist, you have to pick these signals, right? And then say, hey, OB markers have changed. Society is changing, right? So we have to, as as uh, editors, as journalists, we have to, if, if we don't change with the OB markers or with the changing OB markers, then we are not doing a service to our readers. Hmm. And the readers will punish us. Well, what you said about how they never clearly spell it out, um, that is a very savvy strategy in that clearly spelled out rules can be gamed, whereas fuzzy rules always lead to a bit of hesitancy, right? Yes, and who decides in the end whether this is an OB marker or not? Oh. It's a government, right? Yes. It doesn't right. have to tell you that, right? Because don't forget, uh, media has, I mean, uh, uh, the, the kind of press laws that we have for a, for a first world city, it is one of the most archaic press laws we ever have. I mean, the world has seen. One of them is you have to have a license. You have to get a license from the government to publish a newspaper. You have to renew that license every year. And the government doesn't have to tell you if it rejects your license, why it rejected the license. Hmm. It has been, this has been on for a long time. It's all part of the Newspaper Presses Printing Act. And one other rule, which still many people don't know, which is in the, in the, in the rule book, and that is the SPH, Singapore Press Holdings, which publishes the Straits Times, is a public listed company. The shareholding has 3%, this is a government rule, 3% of the shareholdings has to go to a group of people who are very pro-government, who run big corporations, but they have voting rights, which are many times more than the 3%. Oh, I see. Now, the implication of that is, so if you want, if Straits Times wants to appoint a new editor, the board can reject it because the 3% shareholders, because of their, their, their power, they can say no. So it's not and just laws, it's, it's ownership structures as well work it's together also, which is a law which is a law but it's an ownership structure exactly so and thirdly and this is the the the, the thing that one issue about the singapore government i don't understand maybe i'm a bit naive i don't understand because so you have the the press license you have the management shareholdings and you have 
the chairman of the Singapore Press Holdings, has been a former senior government minister mm. for many years. And the CEO has been a former top civil servant. Many, many connections. Yes. Yeah. His connections is one, but I think the government, the bottom line is the government doesn't trust journalists. Hmm. They have seen what happens in America, what happens in in London, England, Watergate, I'm sure they still remember. The press can bring about the fall of a president hmm. of the of the, the biggest country in the world, right? Or the or the most powerful country in the world. All these things have sat on a man like Lee Kuan Yew, and he has kind of passed it on to people. So the trust factor is still not there. And uh, I just feel that governments like most like most parents, grandparents, once they have power, they don't want to give it up. Hmm. They want to control, right? So, but they don't, but what is now changing that scene is the internet. The internet is making the straight signs a bit more irrelevant. When I say that, I mean, from a circulation point of view, straight sign circulation is dropping nearly every day. Straits Times uh, advertising revenue is really going down dramatically. And as far as I know, the Straits Times has never seen what I call a double whammy. Drop in circulation figures, drop in uh, advertising figures. Mm. If you pick up the Straits Times, you will see. This is not the Straits Times we are used to, the number, the kind of ads. And they used to charge a full page color ad in the premium page, thirty dollars to $40,000. No, wow. I don't know what they charge. That's a hell of a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. right? So the the Straits Times keeps saying, "Oh, but our circulation, uh, internet circulation is going up," which is true, but from a very low figure one, and <laughs> to the revenue, the circulation fig, the the advertising dollars in internet is like a drop in the ocean. Most of the advertising goes to to Google and uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. So we are at uh, a kind of a um, uh, crunch point for media, Singapore media. And uh, yeah, I'm watching this with uh, great interest. You know, you, you mentioned Lee Kuan Yew, the founding minister uh, of Singapore. Um You said they don't trust the media. And, and I'm just curious, did they, in your career, did you ever get more hints as to their rationale for why to keep the media um, contained like this? You see, and I think this is one of the key things about the ruling party. You look at the way they treat the opposition. They are quite, they are, they are quite confident of winning elections, my view. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, they are a good government. You know, I'm not saying that they are a bad government. But I think people like me want them to be a better government. And that's where the, the irritation comes in, right? So I think it from politics to media or to everything else, they want to be, there is a sense of 
insecurity, if I can call it, or mm. there is a sense of distrust that if I let go a bit, then I have to let go more, and I have to let go more, and that may not be good, right? Uh, and I, the second point I want to make is that although Lee Kuan Yew is is no more, but if you look at the policies, look at the way some of our ministers speak, and they bring back his ghost, if they can, which then shows they don't want to change the rule book, right? Hmm. They don't. For Singapore to move to a more uh, to a place with a bit more freedom, I'm talking about political freedom, media freedom, is for somebody who's going to take over as prime minister to be a rebel. He has to be a rebel. And I don't mean a destructive rebel. I'll, say, I'll come here and I will do these things, even if Lee Kuan Yew had said these are important. With good reasons, of course, you know. And as long as you have a leadership which is molded in that tradition, you're not going to see any kind of change. And as you, I'm sure you know, that the way the government or the PAP, the ruling party, selects leaders, you look, where are the leaders coming from? Where are the politicians coming from? Army, civil service. Have we really seen a top-notch businessman coming in? Businesswoman coming in? Not that I know. Hmm. Right. So it then it becomes groupthink, right? They all think along the same lines. But as Singapore moves into a totally topsy-turvy world, can we afford that? I'm not sure. Hmm. I leave that hmm. as a question. You know, just thinking of the rules that Singaporean media uh, live under. Of course, there's the the famous Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, POFMA. This is a a new quote-unquote fake news law that went into effect in October of last year. Uh, It's been used a number of times now. The government says that this gives them the tools necessary to keep online falsehoods contained and under control when they could be destructive. Uh, critics claim that it's used to suppress criticism. What do you make of it so far? We're a few months in uh, now. I, I have, a, I have. Mine is a, a middle path, if I can mm. call it that. You know, I, I'm not a great fan of the internet, of the online world in Singapore, because mm. I see a lot of rubbish going on there. You know? So that's the first point I want to make. The other one is. If you look at the law properly, it is not that the government is saying, I'm going to shut you out. The item that you have posted is wrong. And I'm sending you a, a POFMA, an order. Then you put that order and you put the word fake clearly, but your story is still there. Mm. And you carry my, my so-called correction which I think is reasonable to a certain extent. But what I don't like is that only the ministers can give out POFMA orders. Why is that so? Right? Then it gives you a 
a certain feeling is, hey, this is not really right. Why only the ministers, right? So I have a problem with that part of it. And, and, and one more thing, it is not against opinion. You can write whatever opinion you want, but it's just the facts. Yes. Right. Right. If 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 they had gone for opinion, then I would have been puffed mud a number of times. Oh. <laughs> for the articles I've written. Right. Now puffed has become a verb, you know. Yes, like it Google. has. <laughs> That's Google, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Turning to uh, to your book, I guess, for a moment again. Um, there is a quote that I really liked. You you quoted LKY Lee Kuan Yew at one point, uh, referring to you. You got a call to your boss. Who is that chap practicing Western-style journalism in your organization? Um, and it, you know, it got me thinking. Uh, do you believe there's a Western versus an Eastern style of journalism? Is that a thing? Uh, well, I, let me start. Journalism is journalism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you take journalism, whether it is taught in schools or in universities, journalism is journalism. What what do you do? You inform the public. Right, I think that's there's no running away from that. But I think Lee Kuan Yew at that time, this was in the nineteen late seventies or early eighties, when I was editing the acting editor of the New Nation. But Lee Kuan Yew had a major, major problem with Western journalists, rightly or wrongly. Hmm. I still remember one occasion when Lee Kuan Yew called up the editors and asked, why are you using this kind of a picture of me? That's all. Then he said, Harold Wilson, former Prime Minister of England, Britain, the media wanted him out, and they always used pictures which showed him in a very bad light. Mm. Right? So it has been built up over the years. He has seen how the media has uh, attacked him many times, but he's the type of person, you attack me, I attack you. Come, let's sit down, have a press conference. And so much so that later in his prime ministership, the Western journalists love to have a fight with him publicly. He will give as hard as he as he gets. And, and the Western journalists loved it, you know. So there was a, a kind of a grudging respect by the Western media for Lee Kuan Yew. They invite him all the time to give speeches and and um, and, and things like that. So uh, I, at, at the basic level, I don't think there is a difference. But the way the media in the two uh, societies has evolved, I think there is a difference. And I think the difference is the Eastern media especially the the one in Singapore, to a certain extent, I mean, not certain extent, uh, and even in India, you know, China, of course, they all think they want to play a developmental role, hmm. which is to help the country, to the country survives, we survive, you know, that, which is, which is fine, but I always felt there has to be a line drawn between church and state, which in countries that I mentioned, either the lines have been blurred 
or the land doesn't exist anymore, which I over time is not going to be good because even the best governments, which is one of the best governments that in the world is the is the the Singapore government, they need to be checked. Hmm. The Singapore government says no, we can check ourselves. I don't buy that argument. You, and if you continue you, with that argument, we may face a, a big problem one day. I hope it's not during my lifetime. Well, you have a story in the book where you, a minister said, we'll handle any kind of uh, hijinks or corrupt practices. And you said, well, what if the ministers are part of the problem? <laughs> and he didn't really have an answer. Uh, no, he did uh, this was uh, a lunch meeting with one of the ministers. Mm. There were other other journalists too. So he was uh, he used that occasion to talk about a column that I wrote, which was about fear in Singapore. Mm. So I said that's fear in Singapore. People always look behind their backs before they can say something which is not so nice of the government. And he denied it. He said, "No, it's we don't have. I don't think there is fear." So the conversation went on. So you, you tell me, if there is a corrupt minister, you have found somebody to be corrupt, what will you do? So my answer was, I will tell the prime minister because I cannot, I should not write a story just based on what I have, right? I need to get an official response. I mm. think that's the right thing to do. And he said, no, you should not write the story. Then I said, what happens if the prime minister is also corrupt? What do I do? So the conversation ended there. Of course, it was not a pleasant, it was not a really a pleasant meeting over lunch. <laughs> uh, so it ended like that. Yeah. Yes, I can see that. Uh, yes, being an unpleasant note <laughs> to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just thinking of, of Western media here for a moment, of course, President Trump in the U.S. has been calling the press the enemy of the people, uh, which certainly has impacts in the U.S., but do you see that having any impact on the state of Asian journalism when the president of the U.S. Uh, says these kinds of things? Uh, I don't get that sense. I think most people, if I'm, if I'm right, don't like Trump. Mm. You know, don't like Trump mainly because of some of the things that he says, and you know, he is like a a loose cannon, if I can use that term. You know? Because they have no res a little respect for Trump, and I think a lot of the anti-Trump or negative um, writings about Trump are coming from media, especially the CNN. And uh, I think, generally speaking, there's a support for the American media. Although my personal view is, I think they they are taking it a bit to the extreme. That's mm. one. And maybe they are not playing the smart game, the long game, which is the more you attack Trump, the more his supporters, he will get more supporters, and the more the supporters will dig in which may not be good. But of course, CNN, I think, also looks at it from a perspective of getting more uh, viewers, right? Right. 
we can never forget that these are commercially driven enterprises. Oh, of course, of yeah. course, very much so. Yeah, uh, and that that really works to people's benefit uh, to the organization. Also, the other benefit. thing, of course, like in CNN and some of the other public and some some publications in America, the kind of uh, language they use. You know, even though you may not like him, you hate him. There are a lot of things that he has done wrong. He's still the state of. He's still the president, right? So, what kind mm. of language do you use? I'm not saying praise him. You know, you can still be classy in your language, right? Without running him down to that extent. And I think that they are going to lose. They're losing the game. I won't be surprised if uh, Trump is reelected. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see where that. <laughs> we'll see where <laughs> we that ends see. up. Yes. I'm. Based on the 2016 results, I'm not going to make any predictions about. No, I'm not making a prediction. <laughs> no, no, I know, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I just feel that this this may be the result in the end. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, well, um, just a couple more things uh, before we wrap up. Uh, one, I did want to go back maybe in our conversation and touch upon this. You've mentioned before that uh, self censorship might be more of a bigger issue than censorship. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, Self-censorship is something that gets into your DNA and you cannot get it out. Self-censorship about case, for example, that you are self-imposing on yourself when things have changed, right? So self-censorship is a bigger sin because then you lose your judgment. You are making decisions based on what you think the government wants. But things might have changed. A new minister may not be the same way. The thinking may not be the same as what it was before. And over time, self-censorship will only kill the profession, Hmm. which is worse than censorship. Censorship, at least you can say, okay, they want me to do it, I'll do it. But this one, you think, okay, this is the way they want me to do it, so I'll do it. But things might have changed. Society changes, right? Hmm. I've seen self-censorship at work in our newsrooms. I I think it is worse now. But even during my time, there was self-censorship. I'll give you a very good example. I think it's a very good example, talking about um, gayhood. Hmm. When I was in New Nation in the 1990s, there was a CNN uh, program. There was this journalist called Riz Khan who had a program where he invited newsmakers and live program. Questions were put to them live. And Lee Kuan Yew was one of the first to appear on that program. The first question, very short, simple, sharp question. What is your stand on gays? And you could see this guy who is unshakable, you know, is so prim and proper, nothing shows on his face. He was kind of a bit disoriented. Hmm. Then he got his school within a couple of seconds, got back his school and he said, if the public wants us to relax the rules on gays, we will let it be. So I decided that should be the angle of the story for new paper. So I put that as an angle. Headline was, what is your stand on gays, senior minister? And one of the sub-editors came to me and said, 
I think we will get into trouble with this headline. I said, look, I doubt it, but it's, it still can happen. This is something the senior minister said in public. It's not private. People saw it. So many people saw it. So why shouldn't I use that headline? Of course, the Straits Times didn't use that. <laughs> I used it and I was proven right because I got no call from the from his office. Hmm. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, that means the OB so, markers yeah. have moved. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. On gaze. Right. So it's about testing those boundaries within reason. I think I think as journalists we all have to test the boundaries. Yeah. Not in a not in an irresponsible way, but in a responsible way. Well, I want to finish up. Uh, I want to finish up on a hopeful note. Give us what you see as the most positive or hopeful trend in the industry that's that's taking place right now. Well, you asked me a very difficult question. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the answer. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> But I think there are the one I'll call I'll, I'll refer to as a ray of hope. Mm. There are still young people, I, idealistic people, who want to join journalism and do something good, which I think is a with a hopeful sign. I, I meet many of them, uh, and there is also the alternative media now for them to go and do it. They can write blogs. They don't have to join a media organization. They can write blogs. And uh, and there are the, the old fogies like me who still think that we can do something for journalism, you know, in, in our writings, especially uh, in, 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 in what we write. And because we have been trained in a, in a in a journal in a newsroom, which was a very very tough environment, the training process was was a, was a killer. I had a news editor, which I mentioned in my book, news editor when I just started journalism, who I called him a tyrant of a news editor, mm. who got me to interview a big walk participant twelve times. Each time I came back, he threw the copy at me. And he said, this is not good enough, go and interview again. Now, that's a kind of uh, hard knocks, if you can call it that, that we took. And we got the better of it. Hmm. Right? We learned our lessons, you know, although it doesn't happen now. So we have got, we are not, I don't think we are irresponsible. Although some people will think we are, because we are not supporting government all the time, so must be irresponsible, right? Hmm. So there are hopeful signs. And that one hopeful sign that I'm looking for, which I don't see now, which can come, it has to come from the government. Because the government is the biggest stakeholder in this business in Singapore. Hmm. Not your readers, not your advertisers, not the journalists, definitely. It has to come from the government. And this is not a stupid government. This is a very smart government. It's a very suave government. You know? So it must know that the more it controls the media, the more the media will lose out in its revenue, advertising revenue. So I just have some hope there that the government will want a media that is somewhat different. Hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, Fred hoping, but <laughs> we can uh, we can always hope. We can always hope. Uh, we must dream, right? Yes. As Martin Luther King said, "I have a dream." You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, P.N. Balji, uh, this was uh, really a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your taking the time. Thank you very much. Many thanks again to P.N. Balji for joining us on the podcast. And hopefully, you'll join us for N3Con, the AAJA Asia Annual Conference, starting on the 27th of August. Due to COVID, we're virtual. But the program is as strong as ever. You can find out more at n3con.com. We'd also like to hear from you regarding the podcast. You can reach out to us at aajaasiapodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe as well so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Bill Porman. And I'm Rebecca Eswara. Stay safe.